And what we've been reading about the past two months is the very beginning of the church, the book of Acts. And we read about how the gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ, was the foundation of the church. And then because of that, we saw how the disciples, the, the early church, began to live their lives differently. Through the unity that they showed, the proclamation, the witnessing of the word of God, of this good news that we're, we've been reading about by, by seeing miracles, these incredible things happening, the church growing daily, how they dealt with conflict with one another because you're not a church until people complain. That's what we were talking about last <laughs> week. And we saw how the gospel began this incredible movement that people, they heard this word and this word wasn't like every other word that they heard, but this word brought power with it. Power to transform, power to change, power to bring life to death. Uh, a quote I heard that I love is, God didn't come to make Bad people good. He came so that dead people could live. And we realize that this thing that we call the good news, what Jesus has done, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his incarnation, that when we hear this message and we receive what it says, that its power literally changes our life. It changes how we live. It changes how we think. It changes how we go to work on Monday morning through Friday afternoon. It changes how we deal with our family, with our kids, with our parents. It changes literally everything. That this is not something that we compartmentalize to one part in our life. But it's something that literally has transformative power in everything that we do. But what begins to happen as the church begins to grow is there's people that begin and they, they call themselves Christians, but what they really want is they begin to infiltrate the church. And when they infiltrate the church, what happens is they start changing this message, this gospel. And what they do is they start adding things to it. They say, hey, yeah, Jesus is great, but there's other things that you need to do and you need to learn about your life. And that is what Galatians is about. Because the purity of the message of Jesus begins to be twisted. And what we're going to read about it is Paul. Paul's this incredible guy. We didn't get to him in Acts. We see Paul's conversion a little bit later. He used to be called Saul, and he was literally the head persecutor of the church. So this was the guy that when the, when the Pharisees and the, and the religious rulers, the Jewish religious rulers, when they wanted to stamp out Christianity... What they did was they put Paul in charge of that. And so Paul was the one who was literally murdering Christians. He was in charge of persecuting, of beating them. It says during one of the, the, the moments of a martyr that the people went and laid their robes at the feet of Saul. Because they were going to him for acknowledgement. Saul then meets Jesus. On a road trip one day, he, you know, their road trips were a little different. He was on uh, his donkey, I believe, or, or something like that. And it, it, on his road trip to another city, Jesus comes and visits him in person after his resurrection. And Paul has this radical conversion. He goes from the head persecutor of the church to the one that spreads the gospel the most. And literally, his writings take up most of the New Testament. So he is the most prolific writer in the New Testament. And so he becomes an apostle, somebody that 
got his word, his message directly from Jesus Christ himself, just like Peter and just like John and the rest of the apostles. And we see in Acts that Paul begins to then preach the gospel everywhere that he goes. He starts these missionary journeys. And Paul was the one that he was proclaimed, he was the one that went to the Gentiles, the, one that were, the ones that were non-Jewish people. So he began to proclaim this message, the gospel, outside of kind of this Jewish circle. Because what we read up to it was just Jews that were receiving salvation at that moment. But Paul, his calling was specifically to non-Jewish people. And so he begins missionary journeys going all around the Mediterranean, around Turkey, around Rome around Israel, northern Israel, all over these places. A lot of times in your Bible, in the back they have maps, and they'll show Paul's missionary journeys, his first one and his second one. It's absolutely incredible. And so on his first missionary journey, you can read about it in Acts 13 and 14, he goes and he plants a church in Galatia. This, is, this province is in modern-day Turkey today, in Asia Minor, and it's northwest of Israel, right off the Mediterranean. And so Paul, his first missionary trip, he plants this church in Galatia. And then this letter that he writes is just a little time after that. What we're going to read, the book of Galatians, is, is actually called an epistle. It's called a letter. And a lot of, um, after Acts, a lot of what we have are letters to the churches. So John writes a letter to the churches. Peter writes a letter to the churches. James writes a letter to the churches. Paul is one of those people that writes a letter to the churches. And so we're getting to eavesdrop in on a conversation that Paul is having with the church of Galatia right after he plants their church. And I think it's, 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 it's an, another great reason why we are talking about it today is because this is a fresh plant. This is a new church. And we can kind of get a glimpse into what is happening in this new church. What are some of the issues and the struggles that they're having? And what are some of the things that Paul is warning them of and wants them to see that they don't fall into and some of the things that we can learn from that? And so we're going to start in Galatians verse 1. We're going to be in chapter 1 verses 1 to 9 today, but I'm just going to read the first couple of verses to start us off. It says in Galatians 1 verse 1, Paul an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So I'm just going to stop right there because I want to I want to introduce Paul to you a little bit more. What Paul is, he starts off this letter establishing his authority to speak. Why is it that Paul can say the things that he's about to say? One thing that we're going to learn about the letter to the Galatians is it's a very angry letter. Paul it gets pretty upset. We're going to see that really soon. But throughout the, some of the, the funniest parts in the New Testament, in my opinion, come in the book of Galatians. Because Paul is very upset and very angry at what is happening in this church. And so how he starts off this letter is with a greeting. But in his greeting, what he does is he establishes his authority to speak. One thing he says, he received his apostleship through Jesus Christ. That's nothing nobody can say today, right? It, it, what an apostle is, is somebody who is a builder, a designer. The Bible uh, describes them as architects. 
people who help build and design the church. They are architects. And so Paul is an apostle. He's a builder of the church. But he did not get his apostleship from a person. Right? There are other people that are builders and designers of the church, but they usually have what we call the laying on of hands. They are commissioned by other men to go do that. Paul was commissioned by Jesus Christ himself in person. And that's really important. Because Paul is establishing in the beginning of this letter his divine authority to speak. And if we wonder, why is Paul's letter considered scripture? Why do we read it today? Why do we read it and say this is the canon of scripture? This is something that we consider to be what we read and as absolute truth for us today. It is because of how Paul got his apostleship. So the only apostles that received their apostleship through Jesus Christ himself were able to write canon of scripture, what we believe to be the Bible today, the New Testament. And so when Paul is writing this letter, and we accept it into the canon because of who he was and where he got his authority from. He is, we can, we can say this term, he was an apostle with a capital A, and that apostles nowadays are apostles with a lowercase a. That's a good way to think about it. There was only a few people that received this authority straight from Jesus himself. And so Paul is establishing his authority here to speak to the church because what he's about to say, what he's about to do, he's kind of uh, in my house. You know, I have a lot of backgrounds. I'm all over the place. I'm fourth generation Brooklynite, which means I'm basically a mutt. Uh, but part of my background heritage, my father is half Italian. And so when we were about to get spanked, he said, I'm going to give you a mutziata. <laughs> And so Paul is about to give the, the, the church of Galatia a mutziata. He's about to give them a little verbal spanking for what is about to happen. And before that happens, he has to establish himself saying, I can do this to you because of where the authority that God has given me has come from. And so Paul, he greets and then he begins his letter. In verse 3, we're going to read to verse 5, it says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Really simple. Paul begins his message with a breakdown of the gospel. You think, how is the gospel in there? This is great about us being able to read scripture together because we can really pull apart some of these verses together and look at what is the meat, what is happening here, what is, uh, what, is, what is God saying to the church then, and how can we look at it to what he's saying to us now. So there's four questions here that I see that we can ask that we're about to answer. And the four questions that, I, that we are going to ask that we see this passage answer are these. Who are we? What did Jesus do? What did God the Father do? And why did he do it? So the first question that we're asking that the gospel helps us answer is who are we? Paul says here that Jesus gave himself to deliver us. And what we really need to understand from that is that Jesus did deliver us. And when we look at that, we realize that when you understand the gospel, you realize that we are helpless. 
And I'll illustrate this by asking you, if you've ever tried to kick a habit in your life, you realize the difficulty of it. There are several things in my life that I thought were part of who I am that I would never get rid of, that I would never see victory in, that I would never be able to, to walk through life. Even if I didn't do it for a long time, I knew in the back of my head that it was still there. It's this analogy that, that I love that you sweep dirt under the rug, right? The, the dirt is still there. It's just in a place that you can't see it anymore. And a lot of times that is how we, we live life. If you will this hard enough, if you, if you discipline yourself enough, if you have enough brain power, then what you can do is you can change who you are. But what I want to submit to you today is really what you're doing is you're sweeping things under the rug in your soul. That you're not actually changing who you are, but you are hiding what is deep and dark inside of you. And I submit that to you today because that is something that I have done. I have been in times of my life where I've said, you know what? Um, I'll, give you, I'll give you a good example. You ever, you ever watch a, a pretty girl walk down the block and... You, uh, you, when you do people watching, if you watch a pretty girl walk down the block and there's ever men around, you just see this all the time, all the time. Like, doesn't matter where you are, you will always just see like a wave go like this. And so I was one of those guys that whenever a pretty girl, you know, like I would need a neck brace sometimes because my neck was broken after I was done looking like, what, who just walked by? And as, as, a lot of times people just think, well, that's just how guys are. That's just something that ladies have to get used to. That wasn't the right point to it, man. We'll, we'll <laughs> I'll give you the point in a second. But people, in society, we think, like, this is just how people act. This is part of who we are. And I used to think like that. This is just who I am. And so I, I had no shame doing it, right? And, and the mental thoughts that would come, the fantasizing that would come, all these things that come along with this simple act of looking, this was something that I was told by society is who I am. And something that will never change. And so I bought into that lie. And, but once I started praying more, once I started kind of getting into this Christian thing, I was like, man... Jesus says that if you lust, it is like committing adultery, which is against the Ten Commandments. And so I can't do this anymore because when I look, I'm lusting. I'm fantasizing. Um, let's be real for a second. I'm undressing. I'm doing things mentally in my head that equivoc equivocates itself to what Jesus said as adultery. And so I realized I had to stop doing this. And so I, I would, you know, just put my head down or try to do things. And then when, when pretty ladies would walk by, I would just think, like, don't do it, Justin. Don't do it, Justin. <laughs> look, I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. All right, and I would go through periods. You're like, man, I'm doing good. It's been a few months. It's been a few months. And then, you know, so I'm having a bad day today. You know, you just, I don't care. I'm just going to look at everybody that walks by. Right? Because... This is something that I, I may have been able to stop doing for a while and I, people may have noticed a difference in my behavior and in my actions, but deep down it was still there. 
And the moment of weakness would come in my life. I would have a, a bad day and I would start justifying going back to bad behaviors. I'd look under the rug and say, hey, I remember you. Come back. Let's be together again. And many of us have experienced this with addictions in our life, with bad habits in our life, where sometimes we can not do things for years, but yet one day we are caught in, in, in the just blink of an eye, and we're back to who we were. And that's what it means when it says Jesus delivers us and that we are helpless. Because when we are truthful about our situation in life, when we're truthful about what our heart is really like, that it's deceiving, that our feelings actually lie to us, when we realize that we are conditioned to do certain things, and no matter how much willpower we use, no matter how much we try to stop thinking, to try to stop doing, that we will go back to the ways that we were. Hope you are feeling helpless. Because that is the truth of the human condition. It is helplessness. But then we answer the question of what did Jesus do. It says that Jesus gave himself for our sins. That word for is very important, that he gave himself for our sins because. That means that he substituted us for him. That's a big word. Because what that says is, that word for can also be read as on behalf of or in place of. And so what Jesus did on the cross is what we call a substitutionary work. Is that literally, that we... When, when God looks at us and he, he sees the helplessness of our situation or we, we look in the mirror and we see the helplessness of our own situation, what Jesus did is he swaps us out from that equation. And he says, when the Father looks at you now, he is not seeing the helpless Justin that cannot stop looking at pretty girls when they walk by on the street. What he sees instead is his son. That is the substitutionary work of what Jesus did. That because of our sins, we deserve to die. That we are not worthy of the righteousness. We're not worthy of the holiness. We're not worthy of the presence of the Almighty God. And so for Him to then get back in relationship with us, what He had to do was He had to send His Son to substitute our lives for His and transfer our sin onto His. So now that when... The Father looks at us. He looks at us through the lens of His Son. And no longer sees us, but sees the perfection of Jesus. And through Jesus, that is our door into the presence of the Father. And you may ask yourself, why did the Father do this? Or what God the Father did first? is when Jesus died on the cross, God accepted this as the finished work. He accepted this as the sacrifice. Do you know that the destruction of the Jewish temple was predicted in the Bible? And at the temple, this was the place where sacrifice for sins was done. In the Old Testament, it was considered a temporary covering. So 
Every so often they had to constantly kill animals and sacrifice sin. And this was a temporary substitute for themselves. But when Jesus died on the cross, God accepted that as the full sacrifice for everybody's sin previous and in future. As the finished work. And the temple was being predicted as being destroyed because God no longer needed sacrifices of animals to cover our sin. That Jesus was the only sacrifice that was needed. The last sacrifice that was needed. He was the perfect lamb, the spotless lamb that was slain. And when God raised him from the dead, it was a symbol of him accepting that sacrifice and then breaking the power of sin. And now we ask that question, why did God do it? And this is the answer that changes everything. And there, there's this one word, and it's grace. Grace is when you get something that you do not deserve. Grace is is I have been mean to you. I'll give you an example of grace. There was this kid. I was in Bible school. Um, you know, I had a gap year, and I went to Bible school during my gap year from high school to college. And there was this one kid that I. You ever struggle with just liking somebody? You know, forget about loving for a moment. Let's just let's talk about liking somebody. I struggled with liking this kid. I mean, it was it was bad. You know, like. He would just do things in, in class, like sit next to me and fart really loud and then say, I didn't expect it to come out that loud. Like, why would you even expect to fart? Like, why is this something that you're doing next to me in class? He, he, would, he would pray and then, you know, tell a girl that he wanted to give her a word and use it as an excuse to stare at her the entire time during prayer. Like, he would just do things like this that would irk me. He was like, yo, I cannot like you. You, you just... You annoy something in my soul that I can't get over right now. <laughs> and when I was leaving, when I when I was leaving Bible school, we had a little uh, going away party, and I, I was just rude to this kid all year. It was bad. But at my going away party, it was twenty people came, and he was the only guy to bring me a gift. And he brought me a gift, and it was an incredibly thoughtful gift. He got me a movie. Um, to a game that he knew I liked. And I, I hadn't told him that I wanted the movie. I hadn't told him that, you know, that was something that was on my to-do list, but because I was broken in college that there was no way it was going to happen. But he bought that for me because he remembered a conversation I had with him about the game that I liked and the movie that had just come out. And I remember I got that gift, and I just, in my heart, I was thinking, I don't deserve this, man. The amount of times I cursed you out in my head, the amount of times I just looked at you and went, ugh. The amount of times that I just wanted you to go away. And here are all these people that I consider my good friends and you were the only person that came and brought me a gift. And not only just a gift, but an incredibly thoughtful gift. And a gift that he had to spend money on. Yeah, he got me like the deluxe $30 version of this movie. Came with like a manual, all this good stuff. And that is grace. That is when you have been so 
You, you have been like garbage to somebody. You have thrown them under the bus. You have done everything in their rule book that is a no, 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 no. Yet, still in spite of you, they give you something. That you know in the depths of your heart, I do not deserve this. That is grace. So when you ask yourself, why did God do this? Why did he send his son? Why did he accept the sacrifice? Why did he provide a way? The answer is grace. Not because we asked. It says because right here, he willed it. It says by the will of God, this happened. Not because we were begging for redemption, not because we were asking to be saved, not because we looked at our own human condition and said, man, I can't do this on my own. Is there somebody out there? Not because of that. He did it simply because he wanted to. And this is really important. This is key to our walk with God. This is key to our relationship with him because it becomes so easy to make it about other things. But he did what he did because it was his will to do so. That is grace. But let's keep reading. In verse 6 to 9, Paul explains what the gospel is. But then something happens. He says, I am astonished that you who are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a different Gospel, contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel, contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. See, Paul, at this point of his letters, usually enters into a time of thanksgiving. Not so much right now. <laughs> Paul starts off, I am astonished. Nowadays, it's like, what are you doing? You crazy people. Uh, I'm giving like vernacular translation, the new hood version from Justin Matera. <laughs> what Paul says is, some people have been coming in here and saying some other things, and I am perplexed, I'm amazed, I'm astonished, I cannot believe what is happening that so quickly you have begun to believe something different and contrary to what I have teached you. What Paul says here is that gospel revision equals gospel reversal. That the point that you begin to change the storyline of what has happened, the point that you begin to add to it, the point that you begin to warp it in a different way, the point that somebody else says, hey, I got a message from God, and they add, they take away, they put something else in there. Paul says, even if I come to you in the future and say something else, even if you get a vision from an angel and they tell you something that is contrary to what you have learned, it is not truth. 
The gospel is not a second chance. It is substitutionary work. Because when we think of second chances, we think, man, what if I mess up again? Or I, I do something wrong? Or there is no third chance. That's not how you think about the gospel. The gospel is I am helpless. Christ has done it. God, the Father, has accepted it. And he did it all for grace. We did not ask for it. God gave it. We could not do it. But Jesus rescued us. See, we have a natural tendency to revise this message, this gospel. What we're going to learn here is that the Galatians, the, the, this message that they began to hear. As we dive deeper into this lesson, they started adding rules like, yes, Jesus saves you, but you also have to follow all the religious traditions of the Jewish people or else he didn't really save you. So one thing that they wanted is for everybody to be circumcised. I believe everybody knows what that is, so I'm not going to go into detail on what that means. You know, you can Google it later. Just like, take off images. <laughs> but there were people that were coming in that were telling them that they had to follow the traditions and the rules. Have you ever met somebody that said, yes, God can save you, but here is the list of 1,000 rules that you have to follow for him to actually do his work? Show me where it says that I have to follow these ten rules in order for Christ to have meaning on the cross. No, the Bible on the contrary says that while we were still sinners, while we were in our sin, while we were contrary to what he told us to do, that he came. And what we will do is say, God cannot accept me because I am not first good. None of us are good, and he accepts us as evil. And so when I feel like I have messed up, and something that we need to learn about this book is he is writing to Christians. He's not even writing to people that don't know God. And so if you feel like the gospel does not apply to you, well, the, the Apostle Paul has something very different to say about that. That this is something that we have to remind ourselves of, something that we have to meditate on, and something that we have to realize that our heart is constantly trying to revise. It's very easy for me to say, man, I had a bad week. It's going to be harder for me to connect with God. That is following rules. But when we realize, man, I had a bad week, but when I go to God, he's not seeing my bad week. What he's seeing is the perfect sacrifice of the son on the cross. Then I realize I can still be in the presence of God in the midst of my bad week. And that is the truth of the gospel and the grace that is the foundation of its meaning. And then we try to say, man, my level of surrender or belief matters and it's like if I, if I believe a lot that's what you know Matt if I surrender a lot then I can be saved 
right? And it's like, man, that, that guy really believes, and this girl really believes, and me, my belief is, you know, it's like this much, there's that much. And Tim Keller, great pastor, he gave, he, he gave this um, analogy that I love. He says, when you get on an airplane, does it matter your amount of belief in the pilot, whether they're going to fly that plane well or not? There are a hundred people in that plane, and all of them have different levels of belief. You have the crazy person freaking out, like hyperventilating, at, like going crazy. They need water. They need the barf bags because they have like a one percent belief in the pilot of getting them there safely. But they believe because they got on that plane. And then you have, you know, you have me, where I'm. As soon as I sit down, I open a book, you know, put on some music, and then pass out within two minutes. I pretend I'm going to read every time I go on the plane. I have 100% confidence that I will get there in time, so I, I sleep. I'm good. And then you have people all the way in between. You know, once in a while when turbulence comes around, then my belief starts to wane and I start praying a little bit. I try. But what matters is not the level of our belief in the pilot. What, what matters is the person, our object of belief. The pilot is our object of belief, and so we got on. And so what matters is not our level of belief of Jesus, whether he will save us or not. It matters that he is the object of our belief. And I feel like that is, that is the, the, a lot of times the separation between people who stay consistent and people that don't. That I have had .00001% of belief in Jesus at times in my life. But yet I still stayed on that plane. Because he was the object of my belief. Even if it was the waning, very zero, almost, almost there. But yet I said, still I will try my best to stay consistent. I still believe that you do this. Even though I don't feel it right now, even though it doesn't, I don't like it right now, even though I don't want it right now, even though I, I just want to think about anything else besides you. I'm still, I'm still going to believe that you did this. My actions, my heart, things that are happening, even though they're not reflecting God, I'm, I'm, I repent of that and I'm still going to, I'm still going to believe. So we may be struggling. Like, man, we, we talked about a lot of amazing things. I'm not at that level yet. Well, I, I would just propose this to you. The gospel doesn't matter how much you believe for salvation. It matters that you believe. And don't worry because that little belief, I have faith in God that he transforms that into a lot of belief. See, that? that's what happens. That even in those storms, even that in those trials, even when it doesn't make sense for you to believe, when you stay consistent in that belief, that molds character, that molds perseverance, that molds patience, things that come in the fire. That when we come out of those seasons in our life, we see that our belief, our heart for God is even stronger than what it was. But yet during those turbulent times, I'm still saved. I'm still, Jesus is still my Savior. Jesus is still my way. He's still my God. And then we have some people that say belief doesn't matter at all. Just be good, live a good life. And that's all that matters. And yet we find that that is not true. That we can be the best that we possibly can be. But yet still, 
there is taint in our heart because we have sinned. We have broken the law. We have lied at some point in our life. We have, the Bible says, Jesus said, if you've hated somebody, that is equivalent of murder in his eyes. So I have murdered quite a few people in my heart. So even if I help as many people as possible, even if I do everything I'm doing today, if I do not believe, but yet I try to go on my own merit, then he will never know me. See, the thing is, we cannot judge the Bible based off of our experiences, based off of our emotions, and based off of our feelings. What we have to do is we have to allow the Bible to judge our feelings, to judge our emotions, and to judge our experiences. So many times we think about what has happened in my life, and we impose that on Scripture, and we say, well, this is how I feel today. I don't feel very safe, so I don't think I am safe. But really, what we have to understand is we have to allow the Bible to really judge our feelings and our emotions and allow it to correct our feelings and our emotions. Because even though I'm not feeling very saved at 6 in the morning when I'm woken up and I just hate the world and I hate life, guess what? I am. Even when I mess up in my sin and I look and I say, God, I want to be the, the, this man that you have called me to be, even though the times in my life where I've gone back to the bad things, I can know that that experience, that feeling, does not change what the gospel is. But yet, even in those feelings, in those emotions, in those turbulence, what I do is I look at scripture and I say, what does scripture say about me at this moment? And scripture says that I am welcomed into his throne room. Scripture says that I am accepted by Christ. What we're going to get into in Galatians is scripture says I am free. Scripture says I am an heir of God. Scripture says I am a son. I am a daughter of God. That is what scripture says about me. Not that I am an addict. Not that I am lazy. Not that I'll never get it together. Scripture says that he has done the work. And God is not looking for us to do any more work. He's not looking for us to try to tip the scales back. In our favor. He's not looking for us to even out what he's done with him. He's not looking for us to repay. He didn't give us a loan. He paid the debt. He is not looking for us to be on equal footing and on equal weight. If we try to do that, what we're going to be is very disappointed in our life. What we're going to be really at the end of the day is what we will see in our life is that we can never get to that place we could never obtain equal footing with him and it will be a journey that is disappointing and sad. But when we look, I say, man, you have given me this gift. I did not deserve it. I never will. But I accept it. I thank you for it. That is what changes our lives. That is what causes us to be different. I tell you, I treated that guy 
better every day after that. To this day, I still check up on him once in a while. Yo, how you doing, bro? All's well? Because that gift that he gave me changed my life. It changed my attitude towards him. When we really realize what Jesus has done for us, when we put him as the object of our faith, it changes our actions towards him. It changes our reactions towards others. And we have to realize that when we abandon biblical gospel theology, it is like abandoning Christ personally. When we try to add things to it, when we try to take him out of the equation, when we try to arise it some way, what we're doing is we're following a different path and we're nullifying what he has done in our life. We are saying that we are abandoning you and we are abandoning your work. And as we go through Galatians, I want us to learn from this, this how this church began to veer off, how they began to allow other people to speak into their life, and how Paul brought them back to orthodoxy, brought them back to the central theme of what the gospel is, of how we follow Christ. Because there is going to be times as we are a new church that it's going to be easy for us to veer off, that it's going to be easy for other things to speak into our lives. But we have to remember what is the foundation? What do I put my life on? What is Christ and what does the Bible say? Not about how I feel, not about what it looks like today, not about my emotions today or yesterday. It's about what does it say? It's good. It's good, Justin. I wish I had a Bible right now because this would be a perfect moment to lift it up and be like, we need to have our Bibles. And we need to test our lives against what it says, not look at the Bible and test it based off what we want our lives to look like. Jesus gave himself for us. I'm going to invite you to sing. Have you ever put your faith, your belief in Christ and what he's done? I want to invite you today to make that decision. To say, Jesus... I believe that you came and you walked among us on earth. I believe that you died for our sins on behalf of me. I believe that you rose from the dead. And I believe that you give that gift of your sacrifice to me for free today. If you have never put your belief in him, I invite you today during worship to state that in your own heart. To put the object of your faith in Jesus. To look at scripture and say, how does this define what I believe in my life? And to see how your life begins to change. Not because of our experience today, but because of the power of what he's done. If you've done this before, then I invite you today to reflect on your relationship with God. Has it been based on works? 
Have you had off days and good days and bad days and hard days and up days and down days? And has that been what has determined what your relationship with God has been like? If it has been, you've been living under the assumptions of a different gospel in your life. And today I invite you to reorient your height, your, your heart before God and realize that it doesn't matter how you're feeling today or tomorrow. What matters is who do you believe in? Yes. Not how much you believe in him, not how great your belief is in, but it is your belief in him. We're going to have people down here that will pray for you to my left, your right. At any moment during worship, if you want prayer, if this is new to you and you are saying you are answering that call, we are going to put my faith in you. Then I invite you to come pray with us. If you have any other needs during worship, I invite you to come pray with us. We'll pray with you. You have prayer cards. If you want to write them there, I invite you write them. We pray for you during the week. I'm going to invite Jess so that we can worship right now. And during worship, reflect on those questions.